Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday. It is April the 13th, 2020, and this is episode 2,638 of the Survival Podcast. As it's a Monday, it's time for a listener feedback show. Here's what I got for you today. I've got some questions and some quotes and a bunch of other stuff where you were talking about following your passion. I think it's a good time to talk about that because a lot of people are being given time to reflect on exactly what the hell their passion is right now. I find one of the things people have a problem with is either they don't know what their passion is or they do know but they don't think that it's something that can actually transcend into the part of their life that actually provides them a living. And I think that in both cases there's something that you can do about it. I haven't a quote about that today from someone that when I tell you who it is, you'll be like, really? And then I'll tell you exactly why you should listen to it from this very person. Uh, next up, what to do with the excess nutrient from a hydroponic system? Lots and lots and lots of details here, but even though the guy that asked the question didn't distill it down to that, I, I did for him, and we'll talk about that. Uh, gathering information for making a move to Texas. Something that I'm going to give you information about that, is really very generic to any state. You might think, so I live here. I know some special ways to find out information about Texas. I really don't. Um, I live here. I like it here. I came here kind of in a happenstance sort of way many, many years ago, and I never left. I didn't do a lot of research into coming here. But I'll tell you what I think you should do if you're thinking about going anywhere. A question on my Miyagi pond, also known as a timber frame pond, how I built it, what I might do differently if I built another one. How likely is it that we have had COVID SARS-2 circulating for much longer than we think? There's some stuff that keeps coming out about this that my natural inclination is to push back on it, but the other side of me actually thinks that is the case. I've always been wanting to tell you that I think the denominator, which is the total number of cases that we have had and have, is much bigger than the number that they tell you because they just don't know. And despite doing over a million tests in the United States, the majority of people that probably think they need to be tested right now are still not being tested, and we're not testing for antibodies. And what does all this mean? And this is just some thought experiment stuff again. Uh, but I also have a listener from the COVID front lines reporting on the use of hydroxychloroquine. I still continue to get people on the blog that want to tell me how stupid I am and I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm just spouting this stuff out of my ass. And this is just one of dozens and dozens of direct contacts from people that say, we're using this and this is what happens when we use it. Um, I mean, I, I don't know where people come off with this. Like, I'm not going to just randomly pick one therapy out of all the therapies that they're using on this and decide that it works. Um against results. like I, I don't know where that comes up, but I'm just going to tell you with someone who, who is right there, right there, where people are being treated with it has to say about it. Um, and then I have a question on freezing versus canning for vegetable storage from excess garden production. I'll tell you why I think freezing for a lot of people is a better solution than canning, but why it's not always the best solution, even if it's better. How can it be... Better, but not the best, especially if you're not like saying there's a third option. There is a third option. But I'm even saying between canning and freezing, freezing's probably the better option, but it's not always the best. How the hell does that work? Well, you'll see when we get to it. 
And then I have a question from somebody who's gone into market gardening and realizes how much work it is, doesn't want to go back to a regular job, but realizes they have to do a lot more to make enough money to make it worth doing, but yet they're already working seven days a week and their wife's not happy. Talk about this from a business perspective, not so much from a specific to the thing perspective. We'll get to all of that and more in just a minute. Let's start off with this quote of the day from Julia Child. This is what she said about passion. Find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it. I want you to think about this from a standpoint of who said it. And you can look back at someone like a Julia Child and say, well, you know, she was a famous TV and uh, chef and wrote cookbooks and was on TV for decades and influenced thousands of people in the world of cooking. And it's easy for you to say stuff like that when you're successful. Let's rewind way back. Let's rewind to when Julia Child, and I don't know, I mean, I know there was a movie out about her and all, I never saw it. I don't know a tremendous amount about this woman, but here's what I do know about her. As a younger woman, she wasn't completely unattractive or anything, but she was not a bombshell. There was only four networks that you could be on on TV. Three of them were major networks, and there was PBS. Um, I want you to just go back to that time, and I want you to think about it from the standpoint of this lady with kind of a funny voice who was a pretty good chef. Um, if she had said back then, I'm going to pursue a dream of spreading my way of cooking to the entire world, and it's going to be what I do for a living, and I'm going to be incredibly successful with this. Using the technology and the platforms that were available at the time, what would you say her odds of success were? If you would, if you if you can remove the 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 fact that you know she became a success, and go back to trying to become a success in that environment as Julia Child, and I think you would put her chances somewhere between almost zero and the square root of f all. And it would be a very fair assessment. You'd be wrong. I'd be wrong. But it'd be a very fair assessment. There is a thing about passion. When you truly find something that you're passionate about. And you not only stay interested in it, as she says in this quote, but you become very good at it. And you become good at it to the point where you believe in it so much that you almost can't stop teaching about it and informing about it and evangelizing it that what you have becomes contagious in the best way possible. And eventually, if you stay at it long enough, you find a way to make it work, and then you get to do what you love for a living. Now, here's the difference today. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. Anybody that wants to really be successful at what they're passionate at today, especially if it's something that really lends itself to content creation, in the case of Julia Child, cooking can be. Can be. You, you, you can have kind of a funny voice. You can not be the most attractive person in the world. You can be a redneck hippie duck farmer that wants to teach people about a whole bunch of crazy shit. You can be anything you want to be, and if you marry that to passion, but you put with it an interest that you will not let go of, and a commitment to excellence that you won't stop short of, and a commitment to consistency so that you continue to send that message out, you can literally be successful with anything today. 
That's why when I hear some of the you know the famous you know business gurus and say ah follow your passion is crap that's like a, some bullshit like you know the the tra law of attraction or whatever you know nothing of what you speak you know nothing sure you want to be a multi billionaire and run an empire maybe follow your passion Mark Cuban who says not to follow your passion who became a billionaire by following your passion you lying bastard and I like the guy and he's still a lying bastard here's for people that haven't heard this before this is why Mark Cuban is a lying 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 liar of a lying bastard when he says you don't follow your passion if you want to become wealthy Mark Cuban as most people do know today loves nothing more loves nothing more than basketball number one passion in his life is basketball Well, he was driving around in a car one day and thinking how great it would be if he was able to listen to basketball games on the radio or in some way for things that didn't have coverage here in Dallas. He was in Dallas at the time. He really loved Indiana basketball, and he wanted to be able to hear college basketball games that were not being aired in his market. He happened to know a guy who started out as a janitor. See, I actually know this story really intimately. I'm pretty decent friends still with this next gentleman. His name is Patrick Seaman. He started out as a janitor, a janitor at a major department store. I uh, believe it was JCPenney. For some reason, my mind just kind of flaked there for a second. Was it JC? I think it was JCPenney. If it wasn't JCPenney's, it was somebody like that. But he eventually quickly moved into their IT department. He had a gift for technology, and he began to do things with internet audio almost as an experiment within his capacity of his job. And he met Mark, and they started talking about this, and eventually they put some other people together. Curtis Rogers was one. A lot of people you've never heard of, people that I know, because I, I see I sold into this environment way, way back in the 90s when I sold structured cabling. I built or designed and sold, and then my tech people built a data center that was like a $1.5 million data center for Yahoo Broadcast when they bought Broadcast.com. Where this all started, though, was a thing called AudioNet. And the See, you, people look back today at Broadcast.com and think, what a spectacular failure. And Yahoo paid $4 billion for a domain name. That's not what was going on at the time. It's not, it's not Mark Cuban's fault or anybody else's fault involved in this. The Yahoo screwed it up after they bought it and didn't know what to do with it. What they actually did at AudioNet, which became Broadcast.com, was they sold radio stations on the ability to broadcast on the Internet before there was any other way to do it. That's what all their data centers enabled and empowered. was. And they had these huge, this huge building. And they had these guys in cubicles that were just selling nonstop every day on the phone. They were, they were hitting every radio station over and over again until they said yes, like with a club. And they were very successful. And the people that worked there were very happy. It was one of those cool, you know, Web 2.0 markets or, or uh, companies before there was such a thing. Foosball tables, beer in the fridge, all that shit. And it became so successful. And it had very solid revenue. That's why Yahoo paid so much money for it. Yahoo was trying to figure out how to actually make money at the time. But it would have never happened if Mark Cuban didn't find his passion for basketball and his desire for something that went with that passion, become very interested in it, stay interested in it, and put good people around him to pursue that passion. And today he'll sit up and say, following your passion, sell to the needs of the market, blah, 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 blah. See, here's the thing. If you're passionate about something, odds are there's thousands of other people that are passionate about it. 
and they're probably not getting as much of it as they want. You can follow your passion and sell to the needs of the market. You can do it to become a millionaire. You can do it to become a billionaire. Or you can do it just for lifestyle design so that you can have the things that you want, whatever those may be. But you have to find what you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it. And I would say if you do that, you'll find a way to keep others tremendously interested in it. And this is a good time to be doing that. So let's move into our questions today. Remember, if you want to send me a question for a show like this, uh, you can do that easy enough. Just email me at what's probably the most public email address of any personality out there today, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It is my real email address. I don't have a screener or anything like that. Every single thing uh, that comes to me actually comes to me. And if you put um, TSPC in the subject line, I'll see it. I won't answer them all. I can't. I'd love to. I really would. I would love to be able to say I answer 100% of my emails. And there was a time in my life when I did. And then success got to a point where I, I can't. But, I, man, I answer a lot. Even a lot of stuff doesn't get on the show. You send me an email, you'll find out. A lot of times you get, hey, that's cool, or here's what I think, or here's a link, or here's an idea. I Probably a hundred of those a day that I do at least that with. Anyway, with that, let's talk about this question. So this really is, what do I do with my excess hydroponics nutrient when I am done with the cycle of my system? That's the question. And when I say you can take... All this information and make a single question with it, this is exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about, how this question came in. So, here's the way this... He tried, like, to be fair, here's what he said. Here's, a, Jack, a few related questions. Is there any downside to using master blend nutrient mix in container gardening? When plants uh, starts came from a Kratky system, how would you compare, contrast, augment your standard fertility program with it? That is, and there's a bunch of details I'm not going to read. That is... What do I do with my excess nutrient from my hydroponic system when it's over? Okay, two, is there a potential problem of integrating these systems, or can you also speak if any of the CalMag iron zinc needs that might be utilized master blend instead of separate supplements? That is basically saying I know you recommend these other things for gardening and dirt, and if I'm using this, can I forget about those other things? Okay, those other things, the, 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 the nutrients of calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc – you may or may not even need in your dirt gardening. I have those in my fertility program, so if you see telltale signs of a deficiency, you have them in an immediately available form for the plant. We don't even use them on a routine basis. So we're still back to, what do I do with my excess nutrient from my hydroponic system? Number three, can I use old nutrient in my hydro system to water my container garden? Okay, that's a direct question, and I'm going to answer it, but it is still... In the end, see, this is one of these things where people convince themselves, and this is from Jeff. Jeff has convinced himself that this is a complex situation here. There's lots of things to consider. There isn't. The best thing to do with your excess nutrient from your hydroponic system, no matter how many things you throw at it, is to use it on large-scale perennial systems like grass and trees. That's it. And the reason is this. When you're using a hydro solution, over time, as water goes down, nutrient load comes up. As that nutrient load comes up, one of the things that tends to come up with it is some salts. It is not a massive amount of salt, but it, the more biomass it has to interact with as nutrient and as mineral, the better it will do of dispersing itself and being utilized by the plants that it's going into. 
If you take a concentrated nutrient solution and you dump it into a container garden, which is a relatively small system that is contained by the container itself, you run the risk of using basically too much fertility and too much salt and having those build up over time. So let's, let's give you a couple different options here. What I do with my excess nutrient, I hook a hose up to my pump system, I throw the hose in one of my maiden swells, and I put it in my swells. And absolutely nothing bad happens. It's got dissolved minerals. I live on calcium rock. Alright, it's nothing compared to what's in my ground already. I got duck action going on, I got tree action going on, I got shrub action going on, it's not a problem. If you were to broadcast it across a yard like a lawn, it's not a problem. The more you spread it out, the better. In the end, it is just nutrient that plants crave, right? Like Brondo, right? It's a joke. Don't take it seriously. Uh, that would be one thing you could do with it. Here's another shocking thing you could do with it. People will freak out. But if you understand what you're doing, you'll probably not freak out. You could just dump it into your sewer. Just down the drain. <gasps> oh, my God. Okay. The amount of nutrient that would come off like a home-scale hydroponics system that you would then put into your sewage. And I'm talking about what goes to your sewer treatment plant. It pales in comparison to the amount of nutrient that your family puts into that same system by peeing and pooping into it. It's, it's infinitesimally smaller. It's a system designed to deal with nutrient-dense water. It's okay. Now, I have a problem when you have like a two-acre commercial greenhouse growing multiple vertical systems using massive amounts of it, and they're dumping it into that system. Uh, it seems like there's probably better ways to deal with it, and it's a lot of material. It's still a lot less than the nutrient load from, let's say, one apartment building from people peeing and pooping. So if you really like are in an area where you just don't have the space to do this in a way that allows that nutrient to be dispersed, you could do that. What you need to be careful of, let's say you have a small backyard and a stream running in your backyard. You want to be really careful with all fertility at that point. But you really want to be making sure that if you're using that excess nutrient in any way on your property, it's not creating runoff into that stream. Right, so some sort of micro-earthworks or something like that. But here's what makes this all kind of, let's not stress too much about it. The, I would call the current best permaculturist in the world, Jeff Lawton did a project in, um, I think it's Jordan, where they built this orchard and all, and they put all these soils in. And it turns out there's a commercial farm not far from there, and their surplus water discharge, they've redirected it all into the swale. So it's full of fertilizers and things like that. And his response was, you build active systems that have lots of active biology in them. It's just another form of nutrient. That doesn't mean... See, I think the difference there, though, is they're not relying on that nutrient for fertility. They're just letting the system deal with the nutrient. And that's what I think you need to be doing. So if, if you were going to take your existing hydroponic nutrient and you were going to use it in something like a, a container plant, what I would do then is I would dilute it about 15 to 1. So, you know, you're looking at maybe not even 15 to 1. Maybe 8 to 1. You know, like a cup to a gallon, something like that. I think you would be just fine with. 
But if you do it all the time, over time, you could have some salt buildup. Because it's in one small area, and a lot of your fluid runs through, and your nutrients remain behind in a system like that. So that's that's where you have to use like just a modicum of, of, of some thoughts. Um, but generally, I, I would say this. Compare it to a septic system that uses sprinklers. Right, so you have two types of septic systems. You have the ones that goes into one tank, then it goes into another tank, and then it goes into a leach field. And then you have areas where you don't have the permeability of the land, and so it goes into one tank, goes into the second tank, and the second tank, and then sprays it out on your lawn. How much nutrient and salts are in that? And yet the lawns that you see watered with this look beautiful, and they're not creating environmental catastrophes. So I would not really want to be using this especially full strength in a contained system, but any kind of reasonable dispersal that accounts and doesn't make sure you're not running off into groundwater. Go ahead. The other thing is I think that this can be minimized. Now now Jeff, one of his things here is he's doing Kratky. So with Kratky, you're gonna end up with a very small amount of fluid really left at the end if you're doing anything in the neighborhood of thirty to forty days anyway. So then we just do what we say. But I think a lot of recirculating systems, one of the things that I have learned in like four months of doing this now, I have not ever in any of my recirculating systems completely dumped nutrient. I remove like 25%, kind of like a fish tank exchange, and then fill it back up. So that vastly reduces the amount of discharge. But again, I just discharge it into the swales. So there you go. Let's look at another one. This one is from Sean. Sean says... My wife and I are contemplating a move to Texas. Could you provide some researches for re resources for research? I looked for a Walking to Freedom forum, but it's now closed. I'm a truck driver, so I need somewhere to, to live somewhere. Uh, the trucking industry is strong. Thank you very much for your time and assistance, Sean from Maine. Um, as I said, Sean, I don't have a whole list of resources for investigating moving to Texas. I've talked about this, and what I call this is strategic relocation. For one reason or another, we have made a decision that the place we're in doesn't make us happy or as happy as we'd like to be, and we're going to move somewhere else to rectify that. Now, there's a lot of reasons here. One could be it's really cold in Maine a lot of the year, and I don't want to live here anymore because it's cold. It could be that simple. It could be that the, um, the restrictions of government and taxes, etc., are not as good as they seem to be in Texas could be both of those. It could be I just want to change in my life. It could be I want more land and to be able to afford it, I need to move. It could be I want more land and I want it to be productive, so I need a longer growing season because it's cold in Maine. So I don't really personally mind it, but maybe I want more of that. Whatever it is, I want more open space. I want to pay less property taxes. I want to, I don't want to pay the state a state-level income tax. Because, you know, I'm getting near retirement. I'm looking for a state that is better for retirees. Uh, so many different reasons. And Sean doesn't really say what his is. We know it's not retirement because he's worried about still working. This is the number one thing I would say that's the most important thing that you can do when you're going to make a major move in your life. Go to the place you think you want to live and stay there for at least a week and don't really focus on doing tourist shit. The good news is Texas is not a huge tourist destination anyway. We have some pretty cool stuff 
you know, but in the end, most of the tourist activity in Dallas, uh, in Texas is, is one of two things. It's that we are a great destination for seminars and corporate events and things like that. We have a very attractive cost for those things. We have a very attractive uh, accessibility by airport from almost anywhere in the United States. Uh, it's almost inconceivable you'd have to take more than one connecting flight to get here. Uh, from all but the most remote markets, especially anything that's big that's doing a national convention or whatever. And then our hotel uh, costs and our regulations and all are such that it's very uh, very attractive compared to, let's say, doing something like in California, New York. About the only people that can compete with us on the price and ease uh, standpoint is Vegas. And if you've done Vegas enough, you're like, I need another place to go. So there's that. And then it's local tourism. So it's people like up here in Dallas going, hey, I'm going to get away for like a three-day weekend to Fredericksburg. It's not that we don't have regular tourism. We have South Padre and all that, but we don't have anywhere near of the, uh, the interstate tourism of like a Florida or a California or even like a Washington or like New York with the Catskills. You know, we just don't. And that's, that's, that's kind of nice if you're considering this. And the reason it's kind of nice if you're considering this is, one, our economy is not that greatly dependent on other people coming here. And that means that you're not, like, blown away by all this tourist shit that once you've done it two or three times, you don't really care anymore. And so I think the most important thing you can do is go live the way you would be living if you moved to a place. You know, I don't know what's important to you. One of the things that's important to a lot of people is churches. Some people don't give a dang about a church. But if you do, you might want to make sure that the, the particular persuasion of religious faith you have is well represented in an area, or at least there is a place that you're going to feel comfortable with. You want to know what the climate's like. Don't come here now. Well, right now, I obviously travel's a problem anyway. But if you come here right now, you're like, man, the climate in Texas is amazing. Like, come here in July. Come here in July and see if you like, can you take the Texas heat? Talk to people. There's a, I mean, There is a big difference in just the general culture of people from a place like Maine versus Texas. It's more similar than, let's say, central Pennsylvania, where I'm from in here, uh, depending on what part of Maine you're from. I mean, I've a lot of people from Maine. It's, it's kind of laid back the way it is down here. People are a lot more sociable. It might sound a little different, but get a feel for it. That's the most important thing. Look at the job availability. You know, and let me tell you how I ended up coming here. I met this friend of mine named Brad in the Army. We became like brothers, like a lot of guys that served together. Um, we were roommates for a while. We did a deployment together. It was a good, you know, brotherly relationship. And he said, well, what are you going to do when you get out of the Army? And I said, well, I'm going to go back to Pennsylvania. And then I don't effing know. I might go to Montana. I, I don't really know. I know I don't want to go home and stay home. Um, but I don't really have... And he plans, and I know I'm not re-enlisting at this point. He said, well, I'm going back to Texas. I have family there. The economy's pretty good. I could probably, you know, we could probably be roommates or something for a while. We know we get along. You could find something. And I was like, okay, well, maybe. And I got out of the Army, and I went home. And I contacted him and said, I'm not ready to do this yet <laughs> because I need some time to decompress. And he had gone, like, right to work, and he's like, I totally get it. You probably do. Because uh, he got out, got a job within two weeks, went to work, you know, a dream transition. But then you're, you know, I was a soldier. Now I'm working in a warehouse at a company that makes trains. You know, I mean, it's 
just a, like so I took my walk on the Appalachian Trail. I took some time. I traveled around a bit, and I came down here. And I slept on his floor and paid him half his rent. And I found a job, and then I found a better job, and then I found a better job. And, you know, after those three three jobs, I was making decent money, and I was into my career, and I was building a life. And, I, you know, I had an, my own apartment. And, and, and so I didn't come here with some sort of real giant vision of, oh, I want to move to Texas. It was like I need to do something for myself, and there's an opportunity here, and there's a support system. And so that's what I would look for, man. Get on Zello. Get on the Facebook group. Get on the Texas State Facebook group for TSP. Talk to people. Form connections with people who are already here. And, and I, I mean, I know there for a fact there's one guy that's on the Texas. Not the, I don't know if he's on the Texas one, but he's in the regular one. Um, and if you email me, I'll put you in touch with him, who lives in the general area, and he's a truck driver. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity here, but I think that no matter where you want to move, Places can look really good on paper if they don't fit you personally. If they don't fit you personally, you're you're not going to be happy, no matter how different the economics are. Especially, you know, one thing to be single. You're a single guy and you move somewhere. Yeah, this place sucks. Whoopsie, right? Well, imagine this: you you and your wife move here. She ends up liking it and you don't. Now you want to go back and she doesn't. It's more complicated, isn't it? Or flip that. It doesn't really matter who, where, what. You like him, she does. So you need to be in a unified front. And I think it's really important that you understand where you would live, what it's going to be like, what the culture's like, what the resources are like, the things that are around you, and take your time. And the other side of it, though, is as long as y'all have this mindset of, look, we're going to make a go of this, and if it doesn't work, here's our plan, of what to do for an exit strategy. There is a point where you just have to jump and do it and see how it works out. So I'm sorry I don't have a whole list of places you can go to get more information, but you know you can look at the uh, Chamber of Commerce and the cities and all, but they're all... they're all, See, all the problem is all that stuff is designed to put a very polished view on things and say everything's super. There's nothing that beats visiting a place... You know, do an Airbnb, stay in a house, not a hotel, go to the grocery store, types of grocery stores you would go. Maybe you wouldn't move that neighborhood, but, you know, grocery shopping is the same throughout most of the state. Um, get a feel for the people. Get a feel for the resources. Get a feel for the weather. Get a feel for the place. And so my thing would be, as much as I want to bring people to Texas, get a feel for a couple places. That, that meet the technical requirements for liberty and for taxes and all that other income opportunities, etc., and then make a decision that's not, I just want to get out of here. It's, of all the places I could go, this one seems the best for me. Next up, um, hey, Jack, bottom line up from is from Lloyd. Lloyd says, can you give a quick rundown of how you built your large Miyagi pond? I've looked at both public YouTube channel and private MSB site, can I see a video where you have detailed the construction of the framing? I have seen how you've done the plumbing, but I want to make sure I'm thinking through the structural integrity of the frame. I'm planning using 4x4s and a shit ton of structural screws for the side. I will excavate from soil from inside the frame for extra depth, line the bottom with sand, and line the sides with foam board insulation. Uh, how did you uh, do the joint for your 4x4s? How did you do your spillway? 
Any suggestions on using an overflow pipe in lieu of a spillway? Thanks for the suggestions, Lloyd. Okay, so the answer is the reason you don't see a detailed explanation of how I did this is it's just too simple to try to make it complicated. I did exactly what you said. We dug a hole. We used an excavator for it. Um, in a normal place, I would have gone deeper. Um, we put the 4x4s down for the first level, and we screwed them together from the ends. Not really structurally, but just not for the purpose of long-term structure, but just for temporary structure so that they would stay together. That allowed us to kind of shim them with little rocks and stuff like that till we leveled the frame. And then we pushed dirt underneath it and from the outside, but not in the bottom. I did not use sand, but there's nothing wrong with using sand. We actually did use sand to kind of level everything out and to kind of deal with the fact we dug a hole, and two days before my workshop, it poured, and we ended up with a mud hole that we had to bail out. So we used some sand and we used some wood chips to kind of deal with that muck. But once we got it leveled out, I took inch-and-a-half foam board insulation, and I covered the bottom with it. I used a standard EDM pond liner, heavy-duty one, that I got from pondliners.com, and I did not put foam board on the walls. Why? Because it's smooth wood, and that liner can handle it no problem. The frame we built, exactly like you said, we used structural wood screws, If I had it to do again, I might have spent another couple hundred bucks and added two more to each course. I think we used two, four, five to each 12-foot 4x4. It may have been two, four, six, something like that. I might have gone to more like eight. You'll spend more money on the screws than the lumber. They're expensive. The other option, and they cost just as much, is to use large galvanized spikes. I built my 8-foot one with those. I really make, recommend that you use a auger bit to drill the holes out either way. Even the structural wood screws, the structural wood screws, you need a regular drill bit that's a little bit smaller than them. Uh, if you use the, um, the, the spikes, you want to use an auger bit that's just a little bit smaller than the diameter of the spikes. They cost about the same per, uh, per piece. The spikes are longer. And just as strong, the the, wood, the structural wood screws are about the same strength, thinner, and not as long, so they don't go into the next course where the spikes will. Either way works. The structural wood screws are so much easier. All we did for joining is it's kind of log cabin style where one end overlays, and you can look at the video, and you can see exactly what we did. There's nothing was done to the wood. It was just laid down. And it just, the, the corners kind of swap. One overhangs one way, then one overhangs the next. That's it. There ain't nothing more to it than that. For the last course, we put the liner in, and then on top of the liner, on the top and bottom of that course, we took, for each side, an entire tube of silicon. So we laid down silicon, put the liner on it, And then, I know we didn't, we just laid the liner down. We put the, the silicon on top of the liner before we put the last piece on. That last piece that sandwiched the liner before the cap rail went on. That's, that's, and we put the silicon there. And I did that because it seeps between that on my Miyagi pond when it fills instead of going out the overflow. For the overflow. <laughs> All I did was take that last course and I cut a, I cut a overflow piece out. 
I did that with a with a uh, a circular saw. I just took the circular. I marked how wide I wanted it to be. I took the circular saw and I just cut it a bunch of times between those. And then I took like a screwdriver and a hammer and just chiseled it out. Basically, I would have used a chisel. I could have found my chisel. But once I made a bunch of cuts, it just kind of all came out. And that, I mean, if you look at the pictures of it, the videos of it, that's all that. See, what you're seeing is all that it is. There's the reason there's no complex. Here's how to build it because it's a box with a liner in it with a cap rail on the top. That's all that it is. Now, improving the structure. I think one of the things you could do to improve the structural reliability of it is to take two more four by fours, go from the corner on the bottom to the center top, kind of like a triangle resupport on, on both sides with a you know kind of a miter joint so it looks pretty. And then maybe one more up the center, and then attach those to the outside of the wall with structural wood screws, making sure that they're long enough to get deeply into the wall, but not long enough to penetrate the wall, put a hole in your liner. And it, it, if, if, if that that would be one way. Another way would be to take four by fours and let's say for across twelve foot, do one center and then one centered each side of center, so you got three per wall, just straight. Just into the ground, maybe a foot into the ground, and then attached to the walls to kind of. But I've had no real problems. The walls, when we first filled it, they bow just. You, if you get down and look, you can see with the pressure they bow just a little bit. But it, it's very very minor and it hasn't changed at all. It's been over a year now. The, you're you're used, you're over. I know because it's water, it's a lot of pressure and all. But you're overbuilding in regard to what you're doing by using 4x4s. There's a lot of load strength there. What I might do different, and I probably should have done this, and we'll see if long-term I end up with a problem, though I have a very well-drained area the way we built it. Like Even though we made a hole, the wood doesn't go into the hole. It's up at, at ground level, and that whole area drains really well if you don't have a hole there to fill up. Um, and we put more drainage in to drain water away from it. Looking back at it, it would have made a lot of sense for me to have basically completely coated the first course in like tar or something like that, at least the bottom of it, uh, or to have taken uh, like half cinder block. It just would have been a lot of work and set the bottom course on top of like half cinder block framed out. But then you would have had to level all those cinder blocks all the way around it. I'm not sure that it's really worth it. You know, I use pressure-treated ground contact rated lumber. And so we'll see, you know, 10 years from now, if I have to tear it apart and build a new one or something, uh, we might change how we do that. But it's, again, my my 12-footer is a year old. My eight footer is now huh, four years old, and the base, the first four uh, courses, is more like seven years old. Because my intern Josiah built that for me, it was originally going to be a platform for another water catchment tank, and I've just decided like I don't want to build that. Now again, these are very well drained areas. I live in a fairly arid climate. So you might need to think more about you know your first or first two courses doing some things to uh, better preserve them uh, long term if you live in a more humid climate. But I've seen retaining walls built like this in Dallas Fort Worth that are 20 years old. I've seen them built out of freaking landscape timbers that old too. So 
I know in some places that doesn't quite work out. So that's it. There's if you look at the videos on it, there there just isn't anything special. It's a box with a liner. And lots of people do it, by the way. They generally don't do them quite to the depth that I do mine. Uh, but if you look, a lot of pond forms and stuff like that, where people like koi and stuff, people build, you know, two foot high uh, landscape timber stuff like that all the time. It's not like it's my original idea. We call it Miyagi because it looks like Miyagi from Cry Kid's backyard. Uh, that was a movie from the '80s. Just I think there's nothing in it. Look, quite looks like that, but you get the point. It's not really like something I came up with. Um, next up, there's an email here that just makes me want to have a discussion with you about COVID and just some things to think about. Try to temper the other side with some logic in this debate when there's people that say we just should do nothing and let us get herd, herd immunity and understand that maybe they're right, but boy, you're taking a risk and we need to look at this very carefully as we decide what to do here. Um, but Justin on the blog said, two days ago, the state of Ohio updated the forecast for peak infections from 10,000 to 2,000. Sounds good and suggests we did flatten the curve, except for the fact that would delay the peak timing, which was desired for testing, uh, developing treatments, getting PPE, etc. That has not happened. The new projections for Ohio's peak was actually moved up by a week. I think this aligns with your theory that the virus has been here a lot longer. There is also a belief that the RO is 5.7 instead of 2.4. That means that for every person that gets it, they'll spread it to 5.7 people versus the number that's been quoted of 2.4. More contagious, but again, as you alluded to, means we have had a denominator for hospitalizations and deaths wrong. Um, I don't know here. And so there's a lot of stuff starting to come out now. I'll put a link to a video by uh, a doctor, and when I say doctor, a Ph.D., is what this guy is. That basically says if we just stop doing all this lockdown, and and then just said if you are at a high risk group, then you just get out of the way for a month to be safe, and we just let it go, that we would eradicate it in two to four weeks. He says about eighty percent of people need to be exposed to it to develop herd immunity. So here's the problem with that that theory. And it would be very quickly, by the way. It would be like a month and it would move through. If we take the death rate of 2% and throw it away, if we take my death rate, and I think the death rate is somewhere more along the lines 0.5%, because I just think we have the number of infections that wrong. So I'm not saying they're lying about the around 2% death rate. I've been tracking it myself in Texas, and i got about 1.9% of reported cases resulting in death at this point. The reason I say it's more like 0.5% is I believe that we're looking at five times minimum. If they say there's 100,000 cases, I think there's a half a million. Now, if the RO is really 5.7, boy, I'm underselling that. But it doesn't matter. Let's say we took the death rate from my 0.5% down to 0.25%. A quarter of a percent lethal. And used 80% of the United States. That's this doctor's number for the infection rate that we need for herd immunity. It results in about 600,000 people dying. Now, in his video, he says that's not the case. But all I did was take his numbers in a death rate that is like 12 times more optimistic than the official death rate 
and then I got that number. Does that mean that's the number you would get? Do you mean, does that mean that's what would happen? No. What he's saying is that death rate might be infinitesimally small. Lower than 0 0.1. 0 0.05. 0 0.04. 0 0.03. But he make, he does nothing to justify that. He just throws a bunch of numbers out. But yet his case is very logical. And my question, I'm still back to, how many people have already had this? And the, the one thing that's hard to justify is why are there 125,000 cases in New York and about 13,000 in Texas if that's the case? When we have fairly similar population sizes, we have very different population densities, that would explain less spread or less rapidity of spread. But you damn sure should have a lot more people dead of things that look like COVID in the window that we've been looking for at January till now. And we don't. Like I said, there's other things that can mitigate that. What if there is some particular reason that it is presenting more aggressive and lethal in New York versus Texas? A different strain of the same thing? A different dietary habit? A different air quality? A different temperature? A different a different nutritional deficiency. I mean, there's all things that it could be, but when you're gambling with the lives of half a million people, what could be is a little dangerous to be so cavalier with. Because this doctor is basically like, if we just didn't do anything, it would all be over by now. And he makes a pretty strong case that that's what's happening in Europe, that's what's happened all over the world, that it follows the same, no matter what you do, it does the same thing. And I guess my question for people that are for the lockdown the way that it is would be the, the claim, and again, I have a problem with this claim, but the claim by the establishment is that if we flatten the curve, the same number of people in total get the virus, they just do it over a longer period of time. We don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system, etc. But it seems like most of the people that die of this thing are going to die of it no matter what we do. And most of the people that survive, the things that we need to do are less heroic than putting them on a ventilator for 45 days. There should, there would be some portion of people in there that maybe would have died that otherwise not have, may have survived. But again, I know it sounds heartless, but how many, how many people dying or not dying are worth shutting down the entire United States economy? to the point of pushing the country to the edge of a depression. What, 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 and I know there's people like, yeah, save one life. We don't do that with anything else. We could save 10,000, 15,000 lives a year if we did this every year for the flu season, if we've talked direct flu deaths. We don't do it for that, though, do we? Again, I understand there's a big difference between 600,000 people and 10,000 people, but is that number right? My... Gut is, everything I said since the beginning is at least partially right. And one of those things is the first people you see infected are the ones that take it the hardest. And as the, as the infection goes longer and longer, you have less people that take it hard because people that are less affected are the ones that are now getting infected. The other thing is, have we done anything? Have we really done anything? And you might be like, well, of course we have. Well, I don't know. 
When you're still having 20,000, 30,000 people a day showing up newly infected during almost a complete lockdown, the majority of them in New York has been locked down longer than Texas has, those numbers still keep... Now, they're not growing. Yes, they're flat. But they're still coming in at massive high numbers. How are these people getting this? Have we done much, if anything, to really change the curve? Or is this just what the curve looks like? Or have we flattened it, but nowhere near as much as we think we have because our original projections were completely wrong? I'm not, there's things I'm telling you about this, like hydroxychloroquine works for a lot of people. I know that because tons of doctors are using it and say, hey, it's, and I'm going to read you something from somebody that says exactly that next. I also said it doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody can take it, and it really has a lot to do with how early you take it to how well it works. And when I say things like you really got to use it with zinc, it doesn't mean it won't work without zinc. It means to get the best results, it needs to be used with zinc. Why? Because doctors are trying it, and that's what they're finding out. But that's something I believe I know. Is it possible I'm wrong about it? Sure. What's the probability? Low. All this stuff, other stuff, though, I don't know. I, when I ask these questions like, how high would the curve really go before it declines if we only did moderate social distancing instead of a shutdown and just took the people that are most vulnerable and protected them? I don't claim to know what the answer to that question is just because I asked it. There's so many people out there so emotional and reactionary right now. You ask that question, they think you are saying that you know the answer and that the answer is, of course, we should do nothing and let old people die. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that's a fair question. The people that say there's nothing, don't worry about it, it's all fake, you people are nuts. And I'm telling you, there are ER doctors in places like Detroit, New York City, Hartford, Connecticut. If you said that to their face, if they have the physical capability, they would knock every tooth out of your mouth for telling that to them to their face after they've watched you know, hundreds of people die. You're freaking out of your mind nuts. It's a deep state conspiracy, man, and there is no COVID. It's nothing. You're a moron. You're just an idiot. You're an idiot if you believe that. It's still a fair question. Would this have happened? Would, would, the, would things not actually look that much differently? Had we gone to just a protection mentality, social distancing, and not completely shut down the economy? If we did in the beginning what I think we're going to do in about two weeks in most of the country, would it look the same? So let me tell you what I think we're about to do in Texas. I think it maybe we're looking at more like two and a half weeks. I think you're looking right at the end of the month. While the president's putting together his back to you know get the economy back up task force, so is uh, Governor Abbott here in Texas. And this is what I think, regardless of what Trump does, what Abbott's going to do. By the end of the month... Most companies will be allowed to reopen. There will be protocols that will include, in many instances and in many areas, that people that go out and patronize those businesses will need to wear a mask, and staff will have to wear a mask. I think in some situations that's not completely practical, so it might be staff but not people that are uh, customers. How would that work? Well, how do you wear a mask while you eat dinner at a restaurant? Well, you don't. So I think you might see like restaurants being able to open at 50% capacity with spacing distances between the tables, with mandated hand washing. Well, I know you have to wash your hands in a restaurant anyway. No, you don't have to wash your hands by time. Every time you go to the bathroom and pee, you have to wash your hands. That's most restaurants have their own policy for that. I think it might be some sort of mandated policy like uh, staff must wash their hands every 15 minutes. 
must wear a mask at all times. That's so your server would wear a mask. Um, but yet in a department store or something like that, you, patrons would be required to wear a mask. I think you'll see um, basically sneeze guards uh, in you know, cash register locations. Lowe's already has that, by the way. They probably didn't even... They didn't need anybody to tell them that. They just probably took plexiglass off the shelf that they had in every store, and they put a piece of plexiglass up between the cashier and the, like, things like this. That's the type of thing that I think, you know, you'll see Texas doing. I also think you'll see Texas say things like, you know, Harris County? And this is unless these other people that are making this advocation that it's going to do what it's going to do anyway, and it's going to, the curve's going to completely go away by itself. Um Harris County, you guys are going to stay under more strict requirements because they're going to end up, right now they have almost a third of all cases in the state or in Harris County. That's Houston. I think in another couple weeks, as Texas reaches its peak resource use and everything else is flat to in decline already, I think Harris County might have 50%. And especially if you do Harris County and surrounding areas of Houston, you might have 50% of all cases in the entire state. Texas is a big-ass state, by the way, in that one area. So you'll see certain areas in stronger lockdown. I think they'll monitor. But I think there's a point where you can't keep doing this forever. We're going to be locked down for 18 months. Shut up. No, we're not. There's a point where you actually just say, you know what, anybody that's at severe risk, you, you need, we need to figure out how to protect them. And then it's just is going to do what it's going to do. And if, it, if, if we lose a lot of people, we lose a lot of people. Because in the end, you can't destroy an entire country to try to save a small portion of it. You can't. I know that there's this such a value for human life that we have this emotional response that we want to. But it's never been done in human history. Not successfully. And one of the things, again, I'll put a, vid, a link to this video today by this doctor. Again, PhD, not an MD. But he makes a very... Good case for a lot of places where they put these restrictions in and said they worked, that by the time they put these restrictions in, it was too late for the restrictions to have worked, and the curve that you saw was just the natural curve. And when you hear the way he explains it, it's comp I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying it, it does bear consideration. So I, I think we'll see. I still have this just gut that this thing's been here for way longer than we've known about its existence. So supposedly the first confirmed cases were like at the end of December, and then the first cases in the United States were early January. I just, I don't know, man. I just don't, and I just think that we need to be honest that if we had cases of COVID popping up in like October, November, early December, in the United States, they would have been considered the flu or other upper respiratory infections. And if people died from them, they'd say some people die of these things. Again, there was a sportscaster. I, I wish I could remember his name. He was 33 years old, though I know that. And it was somewhere around Thanksgiving before or after, right around that time zone, time, time frame. And he died of sudden onset pneumonia. And the reason you heard about it is he was kind of famous, not famous enough for me to remember his name, but he was somebody, well, you know, like an ESPN type guy, and healthy and young and strong and just died. And they said, sometimes this happens. That's exactly how any of these cases would have been uh, approached until the word COVID was in our vernacular. And I'm telling you guys flat out, I'm not saying we had it, but Dorothy and I, 
had something that if we had it right now, any doctor would have looked at it and say, you have COVID. It just didn't get that severe for either one of us. We got uh, felt like started out like a head cold, progressed to more like a weak flu, not that bad of a flu, seemed to get better, and then we started to have basically a, a kind of a dry walking pneumonia, a persistent long-term dry cough, difficulty breathing, but not difficulty breathing to the point where we went to the hospital. It was just like, God, I wish this would get over. And then eventually it did. Now, that was between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We had a workshop right before we both got that. There were people here that traveled internationally. There were people that said they had the exact same thing that were here right before it. And people that said they had the exact same thing right after it. And then people that were here and around people that were here and then they went home in the same place, and one got it, and then later the other one got it later around the beginning of January. Our own Nicole Sauce almost ended up in the hospital with pneumonia around the beginning of January. Was it COVID? I don't know. But she was here, and people that were here with her lived next door to her and were continuing to interact with her. Maybe it just took her longer. To, I don't know. Some people get it, and it takes a long time before they have those symptoms. Some people get it, and it's very quick before they get those I don't know. And I do think that this idea that we do know is dangerous because it's influencing policy in some pretty negative ways. The other thing is, I've been hearing people, look at Sweden, look at Sweden, look at Sweden. Sweden's not doing anything except some basic stuff. Look at Sweden. Okay, I was looking at Sweden, and the deaths in Sweden seemed moderate compared to our own. Because, well, we'll just ignore their population. When I adjusted their numbers for population, their highest death rate so far would be like about 4,000 people dying in the United States. And the curve projected for Sweden looked to just get worse, stay worse, and then finally come down the other side. In about the timeline, this doctor said, but when I did the math, It would be like several hundred thousand plus people dying in the United States adjusted for population. Something strange happened, though, over the weekend. Sweden looks like it has dramatically turned the curve. Now, you can have it look like that. I've seen a lot of people, it looks like it drops and then it goes back up. And it looks like it drops and it goes back up. If it maintains, that's a big-ass if. You have to start looking at this totally differently, though. And that's the beauty of having different countries, different states, different regions handling it differently. You can look at what everybody's doing. And, I mean, there's an email or a, a Reddit thread out by a nurse in Sweden from a few weeks ago that says in no uncertain terms, we are effed. And she did not censor herself. And it painted a very grim picture of what they were doing. But in the end, if it's total lives... I, I don't have an easy answer for you, but I do know we do need to be a little bit more pragmatic in how we look at this. And, and I'm telling you right now, we are at the edge of how long they're going to keep the economy totally shut down. And you people that don't think that's the case, you need to figure out a couple things. One, why you think that way, because the doom and gloom, you need to get it out of your life. But number two is if, if you are thinking that way because you don't want to be exposed and you like it this way as long as everything is basically okay, and you think it can stay okay, it can't stay this way and stay okay for too much longer. It can't. 
And that means that you need to figure out how you're going to self-quarantine after everybody else goes back out to the real world. If that's, if that's your approach, I have no problem with you taking that approach. But it's coming. Let me uh, give you a report here from Kentucky Farmer. And uh, this guy's written in a lot over the years, so this is a very credible report to me. Here's what he has to say about what's going on right now. He said, I am flipping exhausted, having just completed a second stretch of seven 10-hour night shifts as a pharmacist at a relatively small COVID-19 hospital in Kentucky. I have struggled to manage critical care load many times greater than normal. Many of these are also on continuous dialysis. Icing on the cake was that our tug robot system had been down due to logistical problems. I have taken carts of medication up four to eight times a night. We're running dangerously low on some critical drugs. I've lost about eight pounds since the pandemic was declared, yet in my opinion, you have done more to save lives than I have. He's talking to me. I believe your advice has been rock solid. You have taken a calm but serious approach with solutions by keeping your listeners safer, provided they listen, has likely saved lives. Our lead COVID infectious disease doctor started using hydroxychloroquine about one day before you mentioned it. I second the motion to nominate these doctors for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. It also gave our hospital system a chance to order hydrochloroquine in sufficient quantity before everyone started building a drug analog of a toilet paper fort. In my opinion, zithromycin plus hydrochloroquine has been a game changer. When a fellow healthcare professional was infected, declined very rapidly, requiring oxygen at three liters a minute. It also treated with hydrochloroquine, does a rapid turnaround, is now home recovering. I'm inclined to say it work, and there's many other similar stories. I have been able to be an asset rather than a liability on the front lines in no small part to the things I've learned directly or indirectly from you and your, your, your minions. My lifestyle is completely different than it would have been, and I really thank you. Yes, I have about four months of food stores, so I don't have to go to Kroger's other than for a few items that will mostly want versus needs. I have maybe a month's worth of meals in quarts preserved with a carry canner recommended by some jerk. I was able to microwave turkey soup with my garden vegetables and have lots of herbs on the fly at work. Um, quite a bit better than the pizza and donut diet most of us had to resort to, and I admit I'm guilty of this as well. Back in late December, I was inspired to start hydroponic gardening, so when I needed it most, I have tons of arugula, one of my many nutrient detox greens, uh, to help keep me clear of toxins and the toxic gick we use to sterilize everything uh, that are known carcinogens and hepatoxins that we breathe this shit 10 hours a day, kale, shard, etc. Um, so this guy, he, he just goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very... Uh, complimentary toward myself and I, I don't need to gloat or anything and I really am a much more humble person than I think people think I am because you know the only reason I talk about myself is I have to honestly to be able to do this show um, but he goes on to talk about using mushrooms for the prevention of cytokine storms and things like that Q-certain now here's this is a pharmacist working right here he says Q-certain supplementation is a great idea along with zinc um I really think that that's one of the best things we can do for ourselves. But my big reason for reading this uh, from Steve, the Kentucky farmer, and he spells farmer, P-H-A-R-M-E-R -E for pharmacist, um, is the concept that doctors are using this drug therapy of chloroquine and zithromycin, and they're getting positive results. 
no matter what the TV tells you, no matter how much people try to fart back, f fight back on it, and no matter how many people cr criticize the methodology of the research of a study, you can criticize the methodology all you want. You can't change the results. And when you take a patient who's declining rapidly and you put him on this therapy and they turn around almost instantly in some cases, you, you, you can only explain so much of his, his anecdotal. Anecdotal evidence begins to become less and less anecdotal as the quantity of it increases over time. It then becomes evidence-based. And, and, and we don't... I agree with Donald Trump on some things. When we have something that's not going to kill you, this shit with the, it's dangerous. No, it's not, you dumbass. The number one, the number one side effect right now, people taking hydroxychloroquine along with zithromycin and zinc who have COVID, their number one side effect is not dying. This idea that a medication that we've been using for decades that are, that rheumatoid arthritis patients take the same dose per day that a COVID patient takes after the first day's loading dose. And the rheumatoid arthritis patient takes it for 30 or 40 years. And that's not dangerous. But the COVID patient taking it for 6, 10, 15 days is dangerous. Is, is stupid. There is no such thing as a medication without any side effects. Short duration taking of any medication, though, that has side effects such that it can be taken for decades by a single person continuously is a pretty low risk compared to, like, you know, getting pneumonia, going on a respirator, and dying. And more stuff's coming out about this, too. Like, there was a guy that put out an article on Medium. He was talking about how the virus binds to the heme in your blood, and it's really more of a blood condition, and that ventilators are probably killing people right now, especially being run at high pressure. That article was taken off Medium as misinformation, disinformation, whatever. But now we have a doctor in New York, working in the ICU with people on ventilators, I'll put his video up today too, saying, hey, I think we're killing people with high-pressure high ventilators. We can use ventilators for people that really need it, but we need to be reprogramming or running them at lower pressure. And this is a guy watching people die and watching people recover. And his point was, you people that are not at the bedside of these patients need to shut up and listen to the people that are at the bedside of these patients. He was a little nicer in the way he put it, but it's what he said. I'll put a link to his video, too. Just don't think that we know everything about this. And, and, and don't think that just because the top people in government said we should do this, that they're right. They may not be completely wrong. And you can also not be completely wrong and still be wrong. You could have a recommendation that has merit, and there might be another recommendation that has more merit. And again, I'm not saying what we should be doing. I'm just saying we do need to be asking some serious questions right now. And until we have some handle on the number of people that actually already have been infected and cleared, everything we're doing is a guess, and if it's on bad data, you get a bad guess. Move on to something different. Uh, Brandon says, Hey, Jack, long-time listener, love the show. Is vacuum-sealing vegetables from a garden a viable long-term storage solution opposed to canning? I hunt and do all my own processing, store almost all my meat by using a food saver. I'm wondering if vacuum sealing is safe and viable for vegetables. I don't currently own any canning equipment, so if I can't use supplies I already have to store things I grow, I would be it would be saving. Or if I can use what I already have, I'd be saving money. Is vacuum sealing safe and viable? What is the process for safely doing so? Thanks for everything, Jack. P.S. You're a jerk because my wife and I have been building up our food storage over the last few years. We currently are three weeks deep into quarantine. Our lives essentially haven't changed at all as far as what we eat. Well, that's good to hear. Um, the answer is 
Yes, it's a viable alternative. Is it better? Uh, depends. So let's talk about what happens after you vacuum seal a vegetable. Well, then you freeze it. So if you're freezing it, yes, it's viable. And all the vacuum sealing is going to do is reduce the propensity for freezer burn and extend the store's life in the freezer. Because you also could take those vegetables, put them in, you know, high-quality zip-top bags and put them in the freezer and do the same thing. The, the, the key here is what vegetable and what do you want to do with it when it comes out the other side of the storage and, and you're going to cook with it. And does it or does it not need to be what's called blanched? So let's take a green bean. In my opinion, freezing is far superior with green beans to canning. A canned green bean is an overcooked green bean. It's not that I won't eat it. It just is. Canned green beans are not bright green. They are pale, sad green, and they are soft and a little bit mushy. They are what they are, and they're okay. A properly cooked fresh green bean is bright green, and it's like al dente pasta. has a little bit of tooth left to it. If we flash freeze green beans, if you go to the grocery store, go to the freezer section and get green beans out of the freezer section and you bring them home to cook, the only way you end up with a green bean that's that's mushy and sad green is you overcooked it because when you get it out of the freezer bag, it's bright green. Problem. If I take green beans, clean them, put them in a freezer bag, shrink wrap, you know, back seal them, put them in the freezer, if I take that green bean out and cook that green bean, I can cook it for almost ever. It will stay bright green and it will turn into a stick. It will be like trying to chew a stick. Why? Because there's enzymic activity in that green bean that we need to shut down before we freeze it. So how do we do that? We either boil it or we steam it for a brief period of time, and then we immerse it in ice water to stop the cooking. So it's like a partial cooking. It's just long enough to shut the enzyme action down. Then we freeze it. And then we get a product exactly like the product that you get that's flash frozen from a grocery store when you buy frozen green beans. And by vacuum sealing it, you get much better life in your freezer. Now, does everything need that? No. And if you look up blanching vegetables for freezing on Google, you'll find all different kinds of charts, and you'll find some that say not required. What's not? What doesn't require it? Um, peppers. There's no benefit to blanching a pepper. Peppers are one of my favorite vegetables to freeze. Here's the issue with peppers. It will never be like a pepper is that's fresh ever again. It will be softer and mushier and whatever. If you're going to make soups, stews, casseroles, fry with it is like a seasoning to make a mirepoix, whatever. Doesn't matter. Even like sliced bigger pieces like to put on like uh, uh, fajitas or something like that, it's okay. It's not quite the same as fresh peppers, but it's okay. But if you want peppers you're going to put like raw on a salad or that are going to be a significant kind of like, you know, when you grill peppers and they're just barely soft or whatever, like, or if you do jalapenos on the grill stuffed with cheese and bacon around them, you can't do it once they're frozen. You can, it just won't be the same. So peppers don't need to be blanched, but they will alter. Well, Obviously, if you can a pepper, you've even altered it further. So in both of those instances, freezing is better, not only equal to as far as 
safety, it's better than canning, in my opinion, for quality. And almost every vegetable is better, either blanched and frozen or just flash frozen, than it is if canned. Because canning is overcooking. You have to overcook to can. Why does that make it better but not best? Like I said in my intro, though. Okay. You have a freezer. You only have so much room. That's why. The thing about canning is everything available for storage becomes room for your canned goods. So the big advantage with canning is we don't need a freezer, and therefore we have more space available. It takes more work. It takes more energy and a lower quality food, but you do get that in return for it. And that's that's why most of my canning is honestly meats. I like to can meat because I'm always making meat that's like for stews or something like that. It doesn't matter that it's canned. You're going to overcook it anyway because you cook it till it's soft. Uh, and that's generally what I like to do. Um, on the vegetable front, though, one more really important thing. If you are going to blanch broccoli or green beans or anything like that, and you're going to put it in a pouch and say, this pouch shall be for a meal, and I'm going to put a specific amount in here, and I'm going to throw it into the freezer, and I'm going to one day open it up and take that pouch out and go broccoli and, and cook it, and it's going to be for me and the wife, and that's just is what it is. Okay, it doesn't matter what you do next. Once you've blanched it, divided it, you can take it, you know, Get some water off and all, but don't worry about some extra water. Throw it in there, vacuum seal it, put a date on it. and The only thing you got to be careful is if water gets in the seal of your vacuum seal bag, it will fail. So the way to get around that, take your broccoli, stick it in your bag, your beans, put it in your bag, throw it in the freezer for about an hour. Take it out and vacuum seal it. It'll be hard. It won't crush And the water will have gone to ice, so it won't come up the bag, get in the seal, and ruin the seal, and cause it to fail. That's one way. But what if you wanted to have a great big bag of green beans, and you wanted to be able to open it, take out a couple handfuls of green beans, put in your stir fry, seal it back up, put it back in the freezer? Well, if you do what I just said, you will get a giant block of green beans you will never get apart. How do we deal with that? Same way the markets do it, the supermarket uh, companies and all do it, but we got to do it a little bit smaller scale. We take something like a half-sheet baking pan, and we put down some parchment paper or some non-stick aluminum foil or something like that. We take our green beans, we immerse them in a water bath, or we do steam. We take them out of there, we put them in the ice water to cool them down, we set them on some paper towel and drain them, or put them in a colander and drain them as good as we can, and we spread them out in a single layer on that sheet pan. We pop that in the freezer for about 30 minutes. It will freeze, and there'll be like a little envelope of water ice on the outside of them. We take it out of the freezer very quickly, put it in a bag, put it away. When I do that, I generally just use Ziploc bags because I'm looking for something I can pull out, open, grab, throw. You want to do vacuum seal, put them in a big vacuum seal bag, make it a little bit more um, excess than you, you really need. And then when you open it, you cut it. You take out what you need, you throw it back on the vacuum sealer, reseal it, put it back in the freezer. Those are your options for that. But I actually prefer flash freezing over canning for vegetables for quality and for speed and ease of use. Being someone that grows a lot of peppers and tomatoes, neither of which needs to be blanched for freezing, I'm a big fan of it. My other favorite way, though, is dehydration. And I have so many dehydrated peppers, I don't know if I'll dehydrate another one in the next 10 years. Um, but 
when it comes to tomatoes, I loved to grow cherry tomatoes because they're the easiest ones for me to grow here. And we just cut them in half, throw them in the Excalibur, and man, the size reduction. So dehydration is actually my number two for quality and for ease. So my rankings for storing vegetables in order, number one, flash freezing, number two, dehydration, number three is canning. Fermentation I actually like better in a lot of ways for the flavor. I love fermented vegetables, but I don't see it as a long-term storage. I see it as a way to extend storage over fresh. Uh, let's take another one. So this guy, John, says, just wanted to say thanks for the last couple of shows. It's been really helpful in helping us navigate through what's going on. I started a market garden four years ago and thought it's what I wanted to do full-time. However, I've realized... Uh, in order to get it to produce enough to make full-time income, I'm going to have to do a shit ton more work than I want to put in. I'm already working seven days a week, which I don't mind, but my wife is not happy with it. I really just don't know what to do. I'm pushing 40 and really don't want to get back into a typical workforce. I like being able to work for myself. The only thing I have going is really we're almost 100% debt-free, just a small debt we can pay off real quick. I'm pretty sure the garden... Uh, I could grow all the produce we could consume. The thing I admire most about you is the lifestyle you've built. I would like to be able to have the same kind of lifestyle. I think my property can produce a lot more resources. I just can't figure out what to do for income. Any advice you could throw my way, I would really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Okay, so let's take a look at how Jack built his lifestyle. Right? I, I don't usually like talking in the third person, but it, it will help in this instance to do so. Right? So how did Jack build his lifestyle? So Jack had a really good income from being a partner in a company that he was an employee in. And he made a lot of money doing that. And he started building the side income out of Survival Podcast. And only when that money coming in from Survival Podcast got close, not equal to, but close to the money he was making as an employee and owner, did he walk away and do Survival Podcast. I ebbed out. And I was careful not to become reliant on the two incomes during the transition. Because there was no way that I was going to be able to make as much money doing this as I was going to be able to make doing this and the other thing. So part of this is understanding the transition to repay the money that you're losing by not working a J-O-B. The beauty is there's a lot of things available to you that were not maybe available to me. Now, where you live could change how good these things are, and then right now things are difficult, though some of them actually have more, not less, opportunity. You know, DoorDash and Uber Eats and all that stuff. Like, maybe you do that to make some money because this little debt that you're talking about could become a big debt if you don't kill it. And you say you could pay it off quickly. Would you just mean you could pay it off quickly if you went back to work that you're not doing because you're doing So you might need to find some other guaranteed, manageable source of income in addition to what you're doing. The next thing it sounds to me like you need to do is figure out how to become more efficient in what you're already producing. That could involve different technologies. That could involve employing some labor to do the easiest thing that takes the most time because that's the cheapest labor you'll ever have. The thing that's most time-consuming but the most brain-dead Now, I was talking to my grandson, teaching him how to do some construction work. We're building some stuff here. And we were carrying wood, and we were using the saw. And I said, you know, if you want to be valuable to people, you learn how to use the saw, and you learn how to run the job. And he said, why? I said, well, you're carrying wood. I said, anybody can carry wood. And if I have a job running, 
and I have multiple people there, and I have a guy that can run the saw, I can't afford to have him carry wood unless he's the only one there and not doing something else. The guy that can run the saw needs to be at least running the saw whenever the saw is there to be run, and anybody can carry the wood. And the guy that can oversee the entire job, I can't afford to have him on the saw unless he's not doing anything else and there's no one else to do it. I need him running that job. In fact, I need him running three jobs that he's driving in between to check on people with because the more you know, the more valuable you are. But one of the most time-consuming things on a job like that would be what? Carrying this whole shitload of lumber back here where a truck can't get to. Or going and getting lumber, putting it in the truck and bringing it here and unloading it. Well, that's your general laborer. And the reason I'm taking it to a different type of work is so that you don't get typecast into thinking that, well, since I'm doing farming and market gardening, it's different. No, it's not. There is probably something that you're doing that you could take a 15-year-old kid and in a day teach him how to do it that has to be done for a certain amount of time every week the same way every time. And whatever that thing is, that's what you need to be paying him like a dollar over minimum wage to do. See how that works? If labor is this, I'm not saying it is, but if labor is a solution here to you working less, you want to employ the most easy task that takes the most time. That's the first thing, and it's the most repetitive. You want something that this has to happen every week, X amount of times for X amount of hours. And then you need to push him to beat those hours down. And if you're not willing to do that, don't have a laborer. And if you don't have something that fits that mold, you can't hire somebody at this level. This is not a person who thinks. They might become a person who thinks, but don't you bet on it. This is, I show up. My, my example here would have been when we were selling eggs, Cody, my farmhand. Farmhand was a big stretch. I called him that to be nice to him. But show up, take these eggs, wash them, sort them into small and large sizes into containers, and put them in the refrigerator with a date on them. You, well, I can work more weeks, more days this week. No, you can't, because I don't have enough work for you to do that. I'm batching this into when you show up, this thing for you to do is here for you to do the same way you do it every day. And boy, he was good at that. But ask him to do anything else, off the rails. That's one thing. The other thing is, to get enough income, you're thinking you have to go bigger. There's two ways that you increase revenue in a business. One is whatever you're making, cabbages, widgets, software, you make more of it, and then you sell it to more people. That's the hardest way to grow revenue. That's the hardest way to grow revenue. The best way to grow revenue is to take something that you don't have and add it to your existing market and sell it to the customers you already have. That's how every smart business Is there, that's not the only way they grow revenue, but it's the main way they grow revenue, especially when they need to grow revenue. It sounds like you need to grow revenue. Well, what could you add that's not much more work? Quail? Pastured poultry? Something like that? Especially if we added the pastured poultry and chicken tractored it around the market garden so that we aided the fertility and we bundled things. And the thing about something like pastured poultry is we do that, <clears throat> we sell the birds, and we're done. Or maybe we do two cycles, and we're done. There's some point of the year that we don't keep doing that. I'm not saying, don't go and get a bunch of chickens right now and do that because Jack said that was what to do. Jack's saying, like, that would be a type of thing. 
Can you put a tiny house on your home and rent it through Airbnb when all this crap goes away? Because it will. I highly doubt you'll have it built before this is gone. And do some sort of ag ecotourism type thing. Don't go build it. Don't do that because I said it. But this is the way to think. What can I do to increase revenue without having... Because let's say you did double your production. Can you sell it all? Because the growing part of farming is the easy part. And when I say easy, I don't mean it doesn't take work. I mean that like if your garden of X size grows Y produce and you want to do Y times 2 and you double the size of the plot, you do Y times 2 and you get that. But can you move it? Can you sell it? Is there a way to take some of your production and put it in a more automated way, like hydroponics. What if you took all your leafy greens and started growing them with hydroponics in a vertical system, because now you have something that has less pest problems, etc., and you can hire that kind of low-level laborer, not to run all the complex part of it, but come in, take this, harvest this, put it in here, take this thing, clean it, Put these things in it with new plants and hang it back up. And see if you're gonna if you're gonna expand in any way with labor, you need tasks that are routine, sufficient to actually make it worth them working for you. If I show up to work for you, but I only work for 30 minutes and go home and made five dollars, you're not going to keep me for very long. But if I can show up like a, a kid that can show up two days a week and work five hours both days, ten hours. You know, and make somewhere between 70 and 100 bucks. As long as their labor produces more for you than they cost, they're a win. So how can you take some part of what you're doing and change it so that what can't be done by a dummy can be done by a dummy? And I don't mean to be mean, but the reason I'm using the word dummy is that employee that you hire isn't a dummy. There's, there's Everybody has something they're a genius at. But let me tell you my experience of being a, a, somebody that runs businesses. Whatever you're hiring someone to do for that amount of money is most likely not the thing they're a genius at. They're going to be a dummy at that thing. So you don't need to treat them like a dummy. But you need to design your system accepting the fact that they're probably going to be a dummy in your system. And that they can do what you teach them well, but they need to be in a, every day you show up and connect these dots, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, with a purple crayon, and then you sharpen the crayon and put it back in the box, put the box back on the shelf, wipe the dust off of it, and go home. And when you come back next week, you take the box down, pull the purple crayon out, connect the dots, sharpen the crayon, put it back in the box, dust the box off, put it back on the shelf, make sure it's straight, and go home again. And, you don't have to have, like, it's great to stretch a person and teach them new things. But if you're going to have labor, you need something that they do to fit into the purple crayon formula I just gave you and be something that you know you can have them spend their time on. And if you try them in other ways and they don't work out, you can just send them home early, and yet they still work enough to want to come back to work next Tuesday. I know that sounds very demeaning. But it doesn't matter who the person is I put into that formula unless they are actually stupid and can't function with the purple crayon. Anybody can go in there and work. Anybody who's reliable, shows up on time, and doesn't steal from me will be able to function at that level. 
That's your base. See, that's not your ultimate level for someone you hire. That is your base level. And then we can take them as far as they'll go. But I have to build my system to the dummy level. And I'm going to tell you a secret, whether you want to know this or not. Every successful business is designed that way unless it's two really smart guys that only work with each other. As soon as you start hiring people off the street, you have to build a base level dummy formula. And then you, like the bigger your company, the more room for growth there is. But how many jobs do you, have you seen, maybe even had, where within two weeks you're like, I can do this job in my sleep. It will never challenge me and I'm only doing it because I need money. And there's 50 other people that you know you're smarter than doing the same job you are. And some of them are doing it better because they're predisposed to packing a box or whatever it is. And there's no, there's no way you're going to move up anytime soon because that hierarchy is just built that way. And maybe there's advancement here, maybe there isn't, but it's something to do for now. Every company's built that way. Now, you might hire in at a level where you've proven yourself above that dummy level, but that's where every entry-level thing starts at a dummy level. So if you're going to solve this problem of labor, you got to build a dummy level. But you got to think about how do I get more money instead of how do I grow more food. Growing food might be a way to get more money, but that's not the goal. How do I work less and get more money? And it might be stacking multiple things into this situation, and you have to do a really heavy analysis of what you're doing. Seven days a week and not making enough money to make a, li a full-time living, that doesn't work for me. Uh-uh. No. No, that is no, no wonder your wife's not happy. She wants her husband back. Like, you can't do that. If, if what you're doing now, your only way to grow it is to do more of it, and you're already making seven days a week and not making a full-time wage, that doesn't work. You have to come at this from a totally different, and I can't do it for you because I don't know enough about your, your system. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. If you enjoyed it and you want to help support us, remember, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, that is where I have all of my reviews available on the website. But doesn't matter what you buy, as long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what it is. Today's item of the day is Davidson's Gunpowder Green Tea. Gunpowder Green Tea? What the hell's that? Gunpowder has to do with the, uh, the shape of the dried leaf. What they do is they take really long leaf of green tea, and then they roll it up into a little ball. Uh, it's about the size of like, Now, it's about a good size of a, a big spitball you'd spit at your buddy when you were in high school and spread COVID into his ear, like that size, a little bit bigger than that. Probably wouldn't fit in a straw unless you have one of those big old fat straws from like an Icy or something like that. Um, and it just kind of looks like old school gunpowder. That's why they call it that. Um, it's just a great green tea. It's very affordable. It's made by Davidson's. And honestly, any bulk tea or herb you buy from Davidson's, I'm going to tell you you're going to be happy with. It's organic. It's very affordable for what it is. They sell in one-pound uh, packages. It is just the better way to buy tea than buying little stupid bags. Get yourself an infuser or get yourself a French press and use that with bulk tea, and you will be a happier person with more money in your pocket. And I love more money in my pocket. Um, I use this a lot. It's just a green tea, and I use it blended with like chamomile and other things. I give away a recipe that I'm very fond of because I like to take green tea and mix it with herbs kind of gives some balance and some, you know, it's a mild tannin compared to like a black tea. Just great stuff. And I wanted to tell you something. I put out a little little bitty article today on the blog as well. And I just wanted to kind of point this out to you because I think it will apply to this product for a lot of y'all. 
um, it, the article's called A Note About Amazon Delivery Times Versus Quoted Times. And what I've noticed with Amazon, and my caveat is, I live near Dallas-Fort Worth. It's a 7.2 million person metroplex. And that's just the metroplex, metro Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. You know, there's another freaking million people kind of in a larger radius around that official thing. So this is a major U.S. market. But anything that I've ordered on Amazon that is in stock, if it says something like in stock May 4th or something, that's that's a different thing. If it's in stock, even if the delivery quote is three weeks out, I'm getting it in two to four days, most instances. Here's the few examples from this, just so you all know. I think it's like a PSA for you, so you don't not order something from Amazon just because it says it's going to take a long time to get there. I ordered some DeWalt finish nails for my, my Porter Cable nail gun, and um, delivery date was quoted as May the 2nd. I ordered it on the 10th and got it on the 12th, two days. And it was quoted out May the 2nd. I'm not supposed to see it for another three weeks. I just got some CZ 4-inch net pots for my tomato system. Delivery date was quoted at four days, delivered in two. Uh, I got ordered some waffle and pancake mix for my grandkids. Uh, original delivery estimate was like three weeks, showed up in three days. And I ordered some half-inch bulkheads. Quote was three weeks for delivery, arrived in three days. I'm not saying that's going to happen for everybody or for all things. But I would just say a lot of the stuff you're seeing on Amazon right now where they're saying it's going to take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks for you to get it. If it's in stock, I think Amazon is in a major position where they're under-promising and over-delivering. And I also think they might take certain items that they view as less critical and put longer delivery times on them just to reduce order rates because they know it will. I don't know if that's the case. That's, that's what I would do. That's one of the things I would do if I was Amazon. We just need to we need to reduce the total number of orders right now. At least spread them like flatten their own order curve. That's what that's what I would do, and that's what I think is going on. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, I broke off of John Adams' list of songs. I, I want to be happy this week, and I want you to be happy this week. And I'm seldom happier than when I'm sitting with a margarita listening to Jimmy Buffett. Now I'm not going to have a margarita today, but we are going to listen to some Jimmy Buffett today and all week. We are not going to listen to songs like Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw or, or Margaritaville or whatever, or any of the music that generally people that even know Buffett a little bit know these songs. I'm calling this week five Buffett songs you probably have never heard. The reason I say probably is I think I might maybe have played one of them one time on the air for you before. Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, the other reason is some of you might be bigger fans than me, and maybe you've heard everything a man's ever put out. But... Buffett has an entire catalog of music. I mean, hundreds, literally hundreds of songs. Many of them are very good that unless you are a fan, you would have not heard. This one's from the early 80s. And what I think is interesting about it, just a little aside here, the introductory couple bars of music, it does have kind of his steam drum type Caribbean blended with country sound if you listen for that. But it also... Sounds like the music you would hear in like the intro credits of a sitcom from the early 80s. It has that kind of, you know, thing that just was in pop culture in, in sitcoms in the 80s, but it doesn't stay there. It's just that first little couple notes. Uh, the song is called If I Could Just Get It On Paper, and I think there's, there's two things here. There's the obvious reality of what it is. This is about he went out at night and got really drunk. And had a typical Jimmy Buffett night. We all have who are fans. It's part of why we love the guy. Um, 
And then he woke up and, you know, kind of it all wore off. And he was feeling pretty good the next day, not deeply hung over. But can't tell you the square root of F all what the hell happened the night before if he could just get it down and tell a story about it, make a song about it, make a book about it, something like that. Um, he, he could tell you what he thinks happened anyway, but he has no idea. Okay, anybody who's been young and crazy has had that experience. I think there's a deeper meaning. A lot of Buffett's music has deeper meanings. And, and the deeper thing is that every life is an adventure. And the stories of people that live right next door to you are amazing stories, if they could even remember what they are. And we have a tendency as we age not only to stop seeking adventure, but to forget we ever had it. And maybe if we wrote it down, reminded ourselves once in a while, we wouldn't let that sense of adventure in our, in our lives atrophy so much. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. If I could just get it on paper have happened tonight That seems to me to be the big key I'm having too good a time to ever turn out the lights Go to bed Wake up with a clear head Recalling what made it a ball Yes, if I could just get it on paper, I might make some sense of it all. If I could tell half of the story, funny way most things begin, bigger ways to disguise. All the half-truths and lies Find the heart of my song With the point of a pen Simple words can become clever phrases And chapters could turn into books Yes, if I could just get it on paper But it's harder than it ever looks All alone on the edge of the water Hiding out by the sea of Cortez With my sketch pads and flares Tapes and battery spares It's just no comprehendo To what everyone says Time alone seemed to work well for Faulkner Time away seems to Time, or so 
and my old friend the squid Guess if I could just get it on paper tonight I could tell you what I think I did 